0: Welcome to the second episode of A Word from the Edge, Faith, Religion, and Spiritual Community at the Edge of Secular Culture. I'm Brother Richard Edward Helmer, Rector of Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California, and your host. In this episode, recorded in early July 2017, we welcomed guest Bishop Neff Powell with staff members of the Diocese of California and the people of Church of Our Savior in a wide-ranging conversation about ministry around the diocese, the Historical and Contemporary Episcopal Church, Ministry in the Western United States, and Serving in the Church through Tumultuous Times. In addition to guest Bishop Neff Powell, retired from the Diocese of Southwest Virginia, speaking in this episode are Canon Eric Metoyer, Visiting Priest for Congregational Development, the Rev. Jeremy Clark King, and Archdeacon David Stickley, all from the Diocese of California. So good morning again, a few minutes left in the morning and uh, it is a great honor to welcome again Bishop Powell and members of the diocesan staff and this is an opportunity for us to learn more about their work and to ask questions about life in the wider church. Um, I'm here to facilitate and uh, my only request is uh, grab the microphone before you start talking. And uh, that, that helps us not only facilitate, but uh, make sure that uh, everybody can hear you as well. So We're also going to uh, hook this conversation up uh, with a podcast that we've just started um, called uh, A Word from the Edge. And uh, we, uh, our inaugural podcast was a few months ago when Dryden and I talked about um, Democracy and demagoguery and all of those things in, in light of um, the current political climate in this country. Um, so um, if there's anything you do not wish to be on the podcast, all you have to do is just let me know. <laughs> and I'll edit it out. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. So we will we'll do everything we can to protect the innocent, I, I promise you. A bit of no, no, that's right. Of course, not. Oh, of course not. Of course not. Of
1: course not. I was born in Log Cabin and I built myself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, honest Abe. <laughs>
0: so um, I thought we'd begin with you, Bishop Powell. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your career and uh, what brings you to this point in your journey?
1: Um. I'm Neff Powell and brought up in Salem, Oregon. Dorothy and I met when we were 15 and 16. Just one little story there in the Episcopal Church. I was an acolyte um, and graduated from high school and went to Claremont Men's College. Dorothy went to Whittier later and seminary in Massachusetts, served 10 years in Oregon, one, two years at Trinity, now Cathedral, eight years in Forest Grove at St. Beads, Beads in the Weeds, we called it and then I was called to North Carolina to be archdeacon and deputy for program for eight years. That ended abruptly, but I was fortunate to be called to work on the staff of Bob uh, Laddihoff, who was Bishop of Oregon. Uh, and uh, from there, I was elected bishop of Southwestern Virginia, where I served 17 years. Our children were all born while we were in Oregon, And they started to peel off. When I was elected bishop, our oldest was in college in Massachusetts. Our uh, middle child was just entering the University of Oregon, our daughter. And our youngest moved with us. He was 15. And then he went to Wake Forest and Virginia Seminary and was called to be the assistant and became curate, became the assistant, then the priest in charge, and then the rector of St. Mary's, uh, Eugene, and Louise, the middle child, was the one who attracted the, the brothers in there. So all of our children, all three, and all six of our grandchildren, live there. And when everybody shows up, we fill up two pews at Saint at Saint Mary's. So that's a real quick thumbnail piece on my career. Is that the kind of question you were answer you were looking for? So
2: um, oh, goodness.
1: Uh, I was named for my great grandfather, Frank Henry Neff, who I mean there's jokes you can play off on it, but but I was named for my, my great grandfather Frank Henry Neff, who was an evangelical United Brother and Preacher in home mission work. And that's and, and we have a family. My first my oldest brother is George Bingham Powell Jr. and always Bingham Dad's George Bingham Powell Bingham, then there's George Bingham Powell Jr. Bingham, Cecil Spencer Powell Spence. Frank Neff Powell Neff and my poor little brother they ran out of names Keith Powell no middle name so he's he's had to kind of limp on his whole life with an, and so so that's the that's where the Neff comes from
2: Thank you good mor- good afternoon actually I think we're past eight bells So my name is Eric I was raised in northeastern Vermont and southern New Hampshire I went to university in Western Massachusetts at a small school called Williams and spent most of the 1980s in Boston in night school trying to finish up the last year of that degree. And came to California in 1990 uh, when my wife entered law school and I started in a corporate training program in corporate accountancy. Fortunately, uh, God found another way for me about 15 years later and I answered or called a vocation and became a priest I've been on the bishop's staff since 2012, Uh, prior to that I was serving, my curacy was at St. Cyprian's in San Francisco. For those who know San Francisco, this is in what used to be called, and some of us still call, the Western edition. But the people who are moving in, in the gentrifying neighborhood call it Nopa, north of Panhandle. Um, but it's, yes, exactly. Nopa is north of Panhandle. Uh, we used to call it the Western Edition going out to, from Fillmore Street to Mason Street. Um, it's still a very dynamic neighborhood, but a lot of the families that were there have moved out, um, and it's still an interesting mix of the uh, two- and three-story flat, uh, flats and apartments being uh, converted into condos and townhouses, and the public-supported housing that's still in the Fillmore. So, uh, it's my pleasure to be part of the bishop staff. Um, it's an honor to serve under Bishop Mark. Uh, it's really it's my honor to uh, and pleasure to serve under him. But even more so that I get a chance to visit the 83 congregations of our diocese. Um, yes, that's more than what one can do one a year, but. Um, I'm working very hard at it so thank you Brother Richard Edward to have me up here.
0: It's, it's our great pleasure and Jeremy I'd like to give you opportunity to talk a little bit more about yourself as well.
3: Um, so Jeremy Clark King, hello. Uh, as I said um, earlier, we're, we've been in San Francisco now for six months, uh, last 12 years before that living in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, Before that, England, where my wife and I were both born and ordained in England. Uh, Lived almost every city in England except Liverpool and uh, moved to Canada from Newcastle upon Tyne. Uh, So, we've been um, around the place. Um, My work at the moment, I'm assisting, um, I'm I'm a dependent. My wife is the R1 visa holder and I'm an R2 dependent, uh, which means that I'm allowed to study and volunteer. Um, and so I'm, I'm <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm um, able to uh, be part of uh, the work supporting the congregations in the diocese over the summer, uh, which is great. I managed to get away with doing nothing for four months, which was lovely, and uh, then then uh, I needed to be out of the house again. So yeah, I, I also get to visit, um, and I've, I've. And I I also direct the College for Congregational Development for the Diocese of Northern California, Um, and some of the parishes here have been taking part in that as well.
0: Do you have a question? I wanted to know about your transition from being an Anglican priest in England to then what did you have to do to go through... Exams or any kind of additional training? You just they send just, a letter? They just,
3: just so, yeah. No, there's, there's absolutely there's, there's, no. So, yeah, I. Yeah, yes, reciprocity, yes, yes. Um, so there's no people can move between the churches. Well, they can move this way. Moving from the Episcopal Church to other branches of the Anglican Communion is more tricky, actually. Um, and I think it's to do with the pension fund but um, there's some technicalities but moving from England or Canada here was basically, there was a, a letter was sent from this bishop to my last bishop basically saying is he okay and the bishop says yeah he's okay so as far as I can tell that's about it
1: we're pretty easy that way aren't we it's interesting. There's actually a canon that says you're supposed to be able to articulate the difference between the Church of England and the Episcopal Church, or Church of Canada, wherever you come in from. And, and I will just end my bishop miter on. I kind of ignored that until I had one go really bad, <laughs> even though he came with a, a positive endorsement from his bishop in England. turned out some bits and pieces that were not shared with me. Which showed up primarily in the fact he didn't know anything about the Episcopal Church, whatsoever. So that was an interest. What are what are some of the differences you notice between Church of England and the Episcopal Church? Um,
3: well, I mean, starting this weekend. Uh, this weekend is uh, today, I believe, is the is marked as the foundational day for the Episcopal Church, or the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America, as it was. Uh, the, um, the 2nd of July was actually the Declaration of Independence, uh, celebrated on the 4th, and it's, today is the day in the calendar um, for the Episcopal Church, uh, because it was uh, the Declaration of Independence. Obviously, uh, the two churches had a little bit of a falling out when uh, this country was a bit of a tiff with England. And so... Um, so that, that actually then makes a big difference. So, and the, the major difference actually affects bishops probably more than the rest of us. Um, the, the relationship of the bishop to the diocese, particularly represented through the standing committee, is, is, follows the American pattern of checks and balances. Whereas in England and in Canada, the bishop has a much more monarchical role. So um, we don't, in Canada and England, there's no such thing as a standing committee. It's bishop in synod, is the governing body and uh, so actually bishops um, so we have other protections so in England the bishop the parish has a legal status and church wardens for example in England are the longest established elected directly elected office in the country they still actually under laws of 15 something have powers of arrest in church that's why wardens have warden stakes they're, they're basically a truncheon, they're a nightstick. Um, so, um, so the bishop couldn't do anything to me as a rector of a parish in England because I had freehold. I actually owned the building. In Canada, that wasn't the case. Uh, so in Canada, the bishop is in... It's as though every parish in Canada is a mission, whereas here, the parish is actually under the checks and balances. The parishes have quite a lot of authority, and the bishop actually has less authority in this church, um, or it's more dispersed. And that system of checks and balances, because the constitution of the church was written by the same people who wrote the constitution for this country. Um, other than that, it's pretty much the same.
0: <laughs> it's, it's the old question of uh, who, has, who has the power and what are they doing with it, right? Right. Right. Uh, if I can just tag on to that, one of the interesting things about the foundation of the Episcopal Church is one of the consequences of the revolution was that we, we did not have any bishops at the beginning. And um, we all love to tell the story of Samuel Seabury um, and, and then the debates that led up to Samuel Seabury because there was, there was a movement on the ground in the, in the nascent Episcopal Church, as it were, not to have bishops going forward. Um, and when William White was working on developing... Um, the governing documents um, that led up to the first general convention, um, he was deeply invested in his vision that a lot of autonomy and power remained on the ground in the local congregations, regardless of the outcome of do we have bishops or not. And when we finally agreed yes we would have bishops with limits and checks and balances, and Connecticut was the first to to get off um, get off home plate as it were, and they sent Samuel Seabury to England. To get consecrated, this is this is thumbnails, so you can, can correct my history. Um, but Samuel's, Samuel Samuel Seabury arrives in England and says he wants to be consecrated, and Connecticut's waiting for me, and uh, they all say that's fine, but you have to swear allegiance to the crown. And he said that's fine, but I won't have a diocese to go home to. <laughs> so this went back and forth for the better part of a year, if memory serves, and. The problem was for the Church of England, because they were an established church, they had to wait for Parliament to pass law that would allow them to consecrate someone without swearing allegiance to the crown. So ultimately, Samuel Seabury threw up his hands and he went north to the Scottish Episcopal Church, the non-juring church. These were the holdouts with bishops after so much of Scotland went Presbyterian, as it were, and they consecrated him. And that is one of the reasons why the Anglican Communion actually began outside of Canterbury. It was the relationship between the Scottish Episcopal Church and the new Episcopal Church in the United States where the Anglican Communion got its start. And then later, Parliament got its act together and and things started to happen. But uh, we are all children of history, aren't we? We can't get away from it. We can't get away from it. David, I want to turn the microphone over to you. Can you talk a little bit about... You're coming to your ministry.
1: Oh, golly.
4: (laughs) Are you sure you want me to bore you with all
0: this? (laughs) All
4: right, the cliff notes are that my folks were married in the Presbyterian Church. One day before I can remember, they had a guest preacher who they really liked. So they went to hear him the next week, and it turned out that they got confused and went to the wrong church. They ended up in an Episcopal church and liked it so much they never left, which means that I am an accidental Episcopalian and have gone to an Episcopal church barring me being on my deathbed every single Sunday of my life that I can remember, usually with my mom when I was young. And the four other children and my dad often would stay home, but the two of us got up and went like it was perfectly normal, and it never occurred to me that staying home might be better. When I was young, I thought I wanted to be a priest, and that fell by the wayside in high school. uh, The spirit in her infinite wisdom knew that I was created to be a deacon and decided to push me in that direction when the time was right. So here I am. I was ordained with Margaret in 2009, invited to be an archdeacon in 2013, and I declined. So then I got invited again a year and a half ago and remembered that I took a vow of obedience to the bishop and said, okay. (laughs) And here I am. And as an archdeacon, like I said before, we're the voice of the the bishop to the deacons and the voice of the deacons to the bishop, which is maybe oversimplifying it, but at least making it accessible for a lot of people to be able to wrap their heads around what we do as archdeacons. Archdeacons in other places are a little bit different and local custom varies, but That's what the archdeacons in our diocese do.
0: Thank you so much, David. It's great to have you with us. Um, We're going to open up the floor to questions now. uh, But to just get the ball rolling, I wanted to ask, as you are going around the diocese, um, what are the things that you're seeing right now that really excite, excite you and energize you?
2: As I mentioned before, this is the fun part of the job. As a diocesan staff officer, a lot of the time I'm spent shuffling paper, ensuring that people who wish to be licensed in the diocese through uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Denise, the transitions ministry officer, ensure that all paperwork is in order, or looking at, if you wondered what happened to all those parish reports, they come to me. Um, Questions about Filling nursery school positions usually route through me. But what I see is 83 congregations, 26,000 Episcopalians engaged in a world outside of our church. And I mean, not in our church Catholic, our wider world. People who see that the work of the church is outside our doors. And that is the most exciting thing to me. More and more congregations are recognizing that. We worship here, We inside these four walls, we pray, we build our community, we are re-energized. But when we go outside, we engage with our communities, which you're doing here. But that's getting repeated more often around the diocese. And our diocese is five counties, 4.5 million people are in that catchment area. For 26,000 people, we make a very loud voice. And that's what encourages me. And that's what makes my heart sing, knowing that we're all doing this, living out a gospel message. It's wonderful.
0: Bishop Powell, could I could I ask you to talk about what you've noticed just in your brief visit here?
1: Also, I can say amen over here. Partly, the bishop's assistant jobs are really a lot of fun. <laughs> 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 Having done that. Um, it, I've, they used to ask us when I was a young priest, if your church, your congregation, disappeared one day, would the town notice? And that was Bishop Billiardi, who heard it from his bishop when he was a priest, Bishop of Olympia. And I've always kind of kept that in mind. How, and I think what you're, you've touched on, it's, it's just a sea change in my lifetime for the church to see itself as not just ministering. In fact, we never were self-consciously aware that when parishioners minister, that's also in the name of God and in the name of the congregation. So, But the idea of a congregation having ministries to the community, it really has blossomed and flourished in my uh, lifetime. And that's a, a remarkable thing. And that's what I'm seeing as I go around as churches… Tr- trying, and I think doing some very good creative work to be alive and serving in themselves. And gosh, uh, this, you know, I'll be bragging about this church. If your ears are burning, it's because I've told some good stories about you and what I've been hearing about going on here. But to see, we we had a little dying congregation in southwestern Virginia, which was dying, and the town was dying. It had gone from town status to county, those kinds of things. And uh, churches which at one time were full of uh, children and young adults were you know the kids go up grow up and they go to college and they settle in san francisco or portland or washington or philadelphia and so you get kind of hollowed out so they were getting they were down to six regulars six of the heart and when the bishop came about 15 or 20 people kind of thing and they were they were feeling sorry for themselves, and then I went back another time, five, about five years, six, eight years in. And they were all kind of, you know, and I asked what happened. They said, well, you know, we realized we're dying, and we just decided we were going to stay alive till we died. Mm. And when the last one was left, they'd leave the keys on the bishop's desk. So we looked around, and there was no food bank in this community. So we got the other churches organized to start a food bank. And then after we got that, and we got a grant from the diocese to help that start. And we got another grant to get a a um, wheelchair ramp into the area where, the, where that is. And then we decided to start a free lunch once a month. And now it's every Friday. So they weren't any bigger, but they were a lot more alive. And they also did some internal things dealing with the, some of the specific challenge for that congregation. But I'm seeing that go on all over the place. And I'm leaving here confident that those kinds of ministries are being carried out in this diocese about going around and talking when i was nominated as one of five nominees and you go to different locations for for interviews around and each of those five locations we broke up into five groups so you had 15 different interviews over three days in in my case and one of the candidates one of the nominees was heard to say i'm never going to stand for bishop again all you do is drive around the interstate Meeting groups of people and answering questions, and I want to say, "Look, son, <laughs> I know that's the deal. So tell everybody to vote for me, okay?" <laughs> but I did. But I didn't have the nerve to do it. So
0: questions that you all have um, for any of our diocesan staff today, floor is open. Terry.
1: Just a quick question: And how did Bishop Andrus reel you in for this short-term gig, as it were? How did Bishop Anderson Andrews end up with me? Uh, well, from my standpoint, he just called me up one morning and said, "Can you come down and spend uh, May and the first Sunday in or June and the first Sunday in July covering confirmations for me on Sunday? He w- had he was. Supposed to be taking um, May and June, July, but they've had a, a pastoral emergency that's cut back on that. But he had some out-of-town commitments still on the, on the plate. He had a priest lined up for May and a priest line, uh, bishop for May and a bishop for June, and they both backed out on him. So then he thought of me. <laughs> so, so I'm the third-string that's right. I, I confess, <laughs> but I but I, I think I said, sure. Well, I I can't commit uh, without checking Dorothy. But I'll get back to you. Okay. Yeah, we're going. <laughs> sure. We're we're bishops together in the House of Bishops, and and that's how I knew him. He he tell he tells many stories, but he told a really good story, which actually the exact same na- thing happened in our diocese when he was a college chaplain. He took the youth group or high school down to Safeway to get food for the food bank. And the, people would go in and they'd hand a little... Has he told this story here? He would hand them a little... They, the students, the high school students, would try to hand everybody a little sheet of paper that says, we're with the food bank. Here's the foods that we really need for the food bank. Would you, would, would you help us out? And then people would come out and have baskets. And, you know. So when he debriefed them afterwards, they said, what did you notice? He said, what did you notice? And he said, well, actually... What we noticed was the Mercedes drivers kind of ducked and, the, and it was the day laborers, the day laborers, almost without exception, took that and dropped in food for the food bank. And we had a uh, priest in our diocese, Phyllis Spiegel, took her youth group out and did the same thing and had exactly the same experience. So that's a, that was, he didn't have to preach to them about it. Uh, they had something to think about. Oh.
0: That's great. Thank you so much. Um, can I can I just uh, put a bookmark right there for a moment? Can you tell us a little bit about what life is like in the House of Bishops?
1: Uh, as a bishop, I'm a member of the House of Bishops, uh, and you stay a member with voting rights until till you stop showing up until you die. With some ex- there are some exceptions in that. In England, when the bishops retire, they're put out to pasture. Uh, and they're not involved in that anymore. But we stay active. And my my experience is that they're genuinely some of the finest men and women I've ever met in my life. Most committed, most dedicated, and thoughtful people that I know. Now I will say also, scattered in there are a few that one or two that kind of fall short. Uh, and we had a terrible episode with uh, bishops who were not interested in being Episcopal bishops. And that was a very painful experience that dragged on for close to 15 years. Uh, I, it was during my, the bulk of my time in the House of Bishops. But we have committees and bring business forward. Uh, we meet twice, generally twice a year, except when general convention meets. Um, we meet uh, in the fall and in the spring. And in the fall, spouses... Our, we used to say spouses and partners, now it's spouses, are invited to that meeting. And in the spring, it's intended to be more of a, a retreat setting. Now, we had drifted away from that. As I, The longer I stayed, the further away we got from re, the retreat setting. But in the last couple of years I was there, they reclaimed that. And the fall is uh, more a kind of business. We'll usually have special speakers, usually one or a chaplain. And we generally cannot do any business unless we're meeting in general convention. The House of Bishops doesn't do. Now, we can decide on our membership. So we finally um, came to the point where we let some of the brothers go um, uh, to do what they wanted to do, which was not to be really genuinely part of us. Uh, That was a piece of business we can do. When bishops are elected, they have to be the person nominated. Well, to resign, you don't retire. You resign for reasons of advanced age. Uh, Or missionary strategy, which is kind of a wiggle room term. Um, But to retire, to resign for reasons of advanced age, all the bishops and standing committees had to be petitioned and give permission. And then when the person is elected, that name is circulated to all the standing committees and all the bishops, diocesan, bishops in charge. You think of um, parish, diocese, Episcopal Church, rector, bishop, presiding bishop. Um, And each diocese has one diocesan. You can have other bishops around, just like you only have one rector. You have one rector, and everybody else is an assistant to the rector. You can call them anything you want, curate, assistant, associate, coach, anything else, but... There's one rector and there's assistance to the rector. There's one bishop and then there's other bishops. For all, so, all the bishops diocesan have to approve the person who was elected. A majority, all uh, invited to vote. A majority have to do that and the standing committees also vote and a majority of the standing committees. And about once a century somebody's turned down, but it does happen. And some lead to long discussions and debates and others, most always, almost, almost, without, almost without exception, they just fly through. Because it's, it's, it's a much, much bigger operation in terms of bishops and dioceses than the Church of England or certainly than Church of Wales or Scotland. But even within our volume, there's people who know each other by the time they get elected bishop. There are bishops who know that person and that plays a, a factor in it also. Does that get out some your?
0: Thank you. Joan.
4: Do you mean that after the bishops have gone through the interview process with the different congregations and the congregation congregations the diocese decide to choose a bishop like we chose Bishop Andrus then the house of bishops still gets a chance to say no that's harsh
1: um It's part of how we're connected. It's part of how we're connected. Now, one of the differences uh, between the Episcopal Church and other parts is that uh, the presiding bishop votes also in this, but he has one vote. In many parts, the Anglican Communion, the the archbishop could just say, no, I don't care if you did elect that person. They're unsuited. So we don't face that. But But the person by name has to be submitted to all the diocesan bishops and standing committees. Um, and that's our oldest committee, the Standing Committee, and it deals with property, issues of property and ordination, and used to do discipline, but hardly, hardly now. But prop, real property, you cannot sell this church, you cannot take out a big loan against it without the bishop's approval who consults with the Standing Committee.
0: So, for instance, for instance with our purchase of the rectory last year, we actually took out a small loan to to help bridge the gap between the gifts coming in from the capital campaign and paying off the property. And we needed to get the bishops consent and the standing committees consent um, to proceed with that. Um, And another for instance, of course, there's a parallel at the parochial level. When I was called here, the vestry elected me to serve, but the bishop had to sign off on that. Mm -hmm. And normally, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, process is pretty front-loaded. In other words, the bishop often pre-vets finalists before the vestry makes an election. It, it works better politically that way, right? Um, but um, it's the same kind of thing.
1: And, and I would always, you know, stress with the parishes and vestries, please stay in close contact. There are, in 17 years, there were two, three instances where I found out someone is seriously being considered but I found out something about that and had to call the wardens and say, um, if this comes forward, I won't be able to approve this person. But again, it's part of how we're connected together as the Episcopal Church. Now, the property issue actually goes back to the days when all wealth was measured in land. And so that, that was a bit of that. But if, if someone – you can accept gifts of property – Someone can give you a cemetery plot as a gift, for example, you know, six by six by three. And, but if you want to sell that in order to put the cash in your endowment fund or whatever you want to do with it, bishop and standing committee.
0: Other questions? Comments?
4: Yeah, and So speaking of um, all being connected, um, could you talk a little bit about the health of the uh, Anglican Communion and the Episcopal uh, Church's place in it? And how's that going?
1: Well, I've been out of service for four years now, so I really can't answer that question. That's a joke, but... Um, <laughs> I, th- I, think it's, I think it's going well. There are bits where it's very uncomfortable. The, we had a long time, very close relationship with Sudan, and bishop, Archbishop Daniel Dingbol uh, helped ordain and consecrate me as a bishop, but he remains very, very uh, upset with the Episcopal Church. I think most of his bishops now, as time's gone on, um, the negative heat... Forwards the Episcopal Church has, has dropped, but there are places where it's still un, very uncomfortable. Uh, one of the things, I, among many things, I learned by the Lambeth Conference is every ten years, the bishops, um, I don't get invited because I'm retired now, but bishops get together for a beating with the Archbishop of Canterbury of two weeks. Um, and we went through two very, very, actually three really rough ones uh, over the ordination of women and continuing the ordination of women and the ordaining of gays and lesbians and that one. So we went through some really rough patches. But one of the things I learned out of the Lambeth conference is that you can't just say, what do the Africans think? Because Africa is a continent full of Anglican churches. Mostly planted by the Church of England, But and you can correct me on this, the Church of England has two missionary groups that are different from each other. So uh, part of it, how they responded, partly depended on who converted them to Christianity through the Anglican Communion. Uh, in my, um, they broke us last time. They broke us into uh, uh, groups of about twelve for Bible study, and then group in groups of forty for the Indaba group, big thing. And and literally every, I was the only American this time in my Bible study group, and every day it came back to, Gene Robinson. Every, everyone one, and I just tried, I'll tell you, I am not brave, and I'm not bold, but I'm a little stubborn. Um, so I just, and at the very, and it was uh, the Archbishop of um, Tangany, uh, where's Kilimanjaro? Tanzania. Tanzania. Uh, he, would, he would sit there, <laughs> but but, I, but his legs were always out and pointed in my direction, so I think, well, he's still, he's still in the game, he's not like this. He just kind of quietly sat there shaking his head and at the end, this sweet little bishop, Bishop of Mount Kilimanjaro. It's like you go there to have the title, you know. You're the Bishop of Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, He told, just as a sidebar, he told us that because of global warming, the glacier on Mount Kilimanjaro is disappearing. So the farmers around the mountain who used to be able to grow crops can't grow as many crops because there's not as much glacier water coming off. So they're having to move the farmers to other places so they can do that. So that's one. And we heard from other bishops from other parts of the world different but similar stories. But at the very end, he comes up and he puts his arm around my shoulders and he, and he said, you speak from the heart which I really, uh, I, I kind of brushed it off, said, oh, come on, I'm an American. Um, but I really, I was very moved by that. I, that was a very tender kind of thing. And what, what we would try to say is, look, we're dealing with our missionary situation and you're dealing with your missionary situation. And we're not going to fuss at you about how you've got your particular missionaries, but please understand uh, the 10 years earlier, Uh, a very good friend of mine, English bishop, was very opposed to what led to Jean Robinson um, until one of the American women bishops. So you had one bishop over here from a foreign country says, this is evangelical suicide for us. And she said, it's evangelical suicide for us if we don't proceed with this. Because everybody's got a family. And increasingly, we're willing to accept members of our family who used to be considered profoundly different. Um, so I think things are much better. Now, uh, The uh, Catherine Jeffert-Shorey said over her nine years as bishop, working with the primates got easier over that. Not that they were all agreeing with her, but when it started, it was really harsh. And in fact, there was really concern about a couple of the uh, bishops that were, real, that were very supportive of the Episcopal Church, when she came to her first meeting, stayed close to her. Kind of hung around her. Uh, to, to just... Some of the bishops, primates had been extremely harsh in their criticism. And that didn't happen, but the, but the heat was on. It was in t- very intense. But she said, over the nine years, it, and partly was retirements and replacements, and I think partly they sort of got used to her and started, or let's. There's other things we need to work with. We had um, a priest from Sudan. We always had a big youth council convention gathering, and there would be a period of questions like this, with stump the bishop, they called it. And we had a, a Sudanese archdeacon, and he he described his story of as a refugee of being chased across into Ethiopia and 500 were eaten by crocodiles then the Ethiopians chased us back and another 200 were eaten by crocodiles and he was telling this story with his deep accent and a few minutes later one of the adult advisors said well what do you think about Gene Robinson and he said we have a civil war we have a civil war so does that is that getting at some of your question there
0: thank you so much um I'd like to switch gears a little bit, and this is what we do in our tradition, is we have the church at a a very high kind of global level, and we have church at the very local level, and we mix it up between them, so I thought that might be a nice segue for us to mix it up, and I'd, I'd like to hear some more from Jeremy about what you're seeing as you look through the lens of congregational development on the ground here in this diocese? What, what excites you? What interests you? What questions do you have? What's different as you encounter the church in this part of the world?
3: Um, one, of, one of the differences uh, where, where in England uh, there is a level of cynicism, uh, people tend to look for what's missing or tend to question someone's uh, credentials um, much more easily. Uh, Here there is a sense, and in Canada, of um, enthusiasm and um, optimism. Uh, And uh, people tend to look first at what's working rather than what isn't working. And that's really really helpful really healthy Um, it does also mean that I've had to learn to say thank you a lot more Uh, because because in England someone would say you'd say oh thanks for that and people would that would be massive praise whereas um, whereas here I've had to learn how to say thank you a lot and uh, make sure people know that I'm 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 grateful from Congregational Development, um, again, I see this great um, optimism, but also desire for people to be as effective as they can be in what they're doing, um, to really uh, root themselves in the the communities that they're in, to understand the communities. Um, and so what what we're... Trying to do through the college and and in other places is help people um, get equipped to find out who their neighbours are, um, find out again who they themselves are, so that they know who they're for, um, what they're for, what they're about, and uh, can get in touch with the great joys and riches of our tradition. Um, uh, I, was it via media the Episcopal evangelism thing, which had it was in wonderful sort of. Episcopalian thing. It was via media um, evangelism no longer Episcopal evangelism no longer an oxymoron <laughs> um, but, but that sense of um, possibility but, but also um, we have incredible riches in this tradition. Uh, the depth of our spirituality, the beauty of our liturgy um, as you were saying the, the amount of scripture, one of my favorite quotes is somebody who says uh, she really loves the Bible because there 's so much of the prayer book in it and <laughs> you know, it's, uh, but we, we just have this uh, the liturgical year, um, and so what what we 've been seeing in lots of places is people coming out of the back door of the the big big box churches, looking for some depth, uh, some rhythm of life. Um, the um, rediscovery of monastic life and new monasticism so all of these things are about people finding a a sense of balance and rhythm and uh, humanity in their lives and discovering that there's a a way of being Christian that has this depth and um, and rhythm and balance and a humaneness to it Um, so helping people express that to other people is, is a part of what it's about, too.
0: Any of you have questions for Jeremy? Any of the panelists? Larry.
5: Well, I find this very fascinating because I was part of the University of California system in various places. I was a dean at the Conservatory of Music Before that, I was working on a PhD at Cal and teaching a couple of courses, and I had to pass a test in Russian, and I passed that. But when they asked me to cooperate with the CIA, I thought that was probably a trap, and besides, I thought that was the wrong thing to do. So I declined, and they didn't give me that. So I changed positions again. But I was offered another position at Sonoma State. And I ended up being the Dean of the, of the Humanities. So I was, I was sort of bussed around there. And I, I think it's probably unfair to compare that to what you're describing. But maybe, maybe parts of that are a little the same. Is that right?
0: No, I, I, would, I would say absolutely yes. So, you know, we're, we're looking at all orders of ministry right here right? We're looking at bishops, priests, deacons, and the lay order, which is the largest segment of the church. And uh, to offer you a place to talk about your life's journey and your ministry in that is essential to us being church. I mean, without that, who are we? A bunch of people running around in collars, I guess. (laughs) And that's about all that can be said, but we're so much more. So thank you. thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's, this is who we are. This is who we are. Yeah. Joan. I know it's getting late, so give me a short answer. Uh, the, um, the groups that moved away from the, uh, our, our California diocese and all of the property harangue that went on, who owns what, etc. Has that been resolved in any way, and how?
2: I, I was think, actually, I was thinking you probably are closer to it oh just because of the work you've been doing um, nationally on the canons on that.
0: Well, my, my connection with that is actually um, is, is is through a relationship like so much else in the church, somebody I know. Um, I've worked closely with um, the chancellor in the diocese of San Joaquin, we worked together on a on a um, committee of general convention. Chancellor of San Joaquin, we worked together. Yeah, he's the he's the head legal officer for the diocese, and um, he has been right in the middle of that in San Joaquin, and it tangentially touched with our diocese because we have some legacy properties. Yeah. It, We're all products of history again, right? So California, this diocese, used to encompass the entire state. It's an important thing to remember. And then over the years, as the population of California grew, dioceses were spun off. The last one to spin off actually was the Diocese of El Camino Real, which runs from San Jose down to um, San Luis Obispo, roughly speaking. Um, And uh, that's, that's within within my lifetime. That's within the past 40 years that happened. So there are now six dioceses in the state, but it also meant that there were some legacy gifts that were given to the Diocese of California that were held in common between the mother and daughter dioceses, as it were, of the church. And so there were some things related to the property matters in San Joaquin that were tangled up with this diocese and with some of our legacy. The good news is that all of that was finally resolved in the courts just in the past year. Um, they finally got that resolved. Yeah, so at this point, the, the, the continuing diocese of San Joaquin, the diocese that has remained with the Episcopal Church, is in the property of, of uh, reclaiming all of those properties and deciding the disposition of them, which is a lengthy and tricky process. Eric, do you want to add to that?
2: Well, in the Diocese of California, actually our congregation stayed in the diocese in the, during the most recent schism. Uh, back over women's ordination in the early 1980s, there were some congregations that left. They joined the Reformed Episcopal Church. They continue to be there. Um, we didn't fight those property battles. We were, uh, again, as Richard Edward told, Brother Richard Edward told us, that we were involved with some of the ones in San Joaquin. I actually was blessed to be with the clergy conference, with the clergy of the Diocese of San Joaquin, and saw them re- try to reinvent their diocese to be part of this Jesus movement that uh, the presiding bishop is telling us about, that they're moving into churches, returning to the churches that were theirs. Well, the churches actually belonged to, in the service of the people of God for the perpetu- perpetuity of the church and trying to figure out how do we move back into our churches, how do we share a space with the people who at one time we were completely at loggerheads with. I mean, it was literally a split of brothers and sisters not speaking to each other because they had a different sense of what is church who, and who is the humanity, who gets to be in church and who doesn't. Um, but they saw themselves as the only way we can continue to be a diocese is to be outward facing that we have to look out outside those doors, we can't look and focus inside. So I don't know if that helps the question, but that's what's happened in California. Admittedly, around the church wider, and I turned to my friends beside me, it really depended on state law. Um, In some of the uh, southern states, there were laws that actually protected the split that were legacy laws from the Civil War, which allowed for states to assume federal property from the start of the Civil War. The healing is starting to come, come together, in some places more than others. Um, in San Joaquin, the, the Anglican Diocese of San Joaquin, as they call themselves, is not in conversation at all with the Episcopal Diocese on that bishop, are you 50,000 or 20,000 foot level? <laughs> on that bishop level, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> But on, <laughs> thank you. But on the level, on, on the on the congregation level, with laity and the and, uh, the clergy, they're starting to have some con- they're starting to have some conversations of now what do we do? Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've, we've borne sad witness, and I, I mean this collectively, although it was used polemically for a while. We've borne sad witness to Paul's teaching about taking brothers and sisters to court. It's, it's an ugly and messy business, and my understanding is that really every congregational situation is different. It's been experienced differently. It's been resolved differently. In some cases, the congregation remains divided. In some, there's been a return of people. In others, there was a negotiated settlement, and this is true across the church by and large. Um, but uh, but right in, right in our own neighborhood, uh, San Joaquin was one of the, one of the dioceses that really broke and, you know, for lack of a better expression, broke badly around this. And it's been a long and uh, difficult journey for them. But they've been remarkably faithful and courageous. I'll
1: say a couple of things. Um, the church's buildings are built and fundraised to build and dedicated. As Episcopal churches, no matter when, I had one church leave, uh, but and they were a new church, but they had set up a non-profit corporation to hold title to the property and not allowed the bishop, not allowed the bishop to dedicate it, and they admitted to me specifically so they could circumvent the canons and leave any time they wanted to. But and if you remember the diagram of how the Episcopal Church was organized. For an area, a state in the early parts to become a diocese in the newly formed Episcopal Church, the leaders had to sign a document saying that they would support the constitution and canons of the Episcopal Church, meaning as it existed or would be amended. So, and when this, when the most recent diocese was formed here, the leadership had to sign that statement that they were part of the Episcopal Church and would be loyal to the Canons of the Episcopal Church. And I took those seriously also as deacons once, as priests twice, and as bishops three times, publicly signed a document that I would be that I believe Holy Scripture, I believe Holy Scripture contains all things necessary for salvation, and I will be loyal to the doctrine, discipline, and worship of the Episcopal Church. And I take that really seriously. And so and in my experience Every parish that's left has been led by the rector, who had signed that twice, and every diocese that left was led by the bishop, who had signed that document three times, and followed years of denigrating and, frankly, lying about the Episcopal Church until they have enough like-minded people, then they they call a snap vote and say, I don't know, it just kind of happened, you know, just the people wanted to leave and they voted to leave. And I saw that happen in Oregon. I saw that happen in southwestern Virginia and other dioceses. We've won all the court cases except in South Carolina. Uh, which, if again, if you think of history, that fits. And even there's a famous statement about South Carolina by a South Carolinian before the Civil War. Uh, too small to be a sovereign nation. Too large to be an insane asylum. <laughs> and so... Um, so when you, when you operate, you know, we, we all, and we all operate in the communities we operate in. So the, the attitudes of the community we function in are part, become part of us also. So that's probably more information than you were looking for.
0: Well, I, I just I just want to add a brief footnote to that, and that is one of the patterns that I, that I saw as I've watched all of this unfold, which has really been during most of my ordained career, um, was that, as you said, the, the, the leadership out of the church was normally instigated by a cleric and frequently who had surrounded himself, by and large it was men, um, with laity who were never educated in the discipline and doctrine of the church and really thought of themselves as a, as a congregation primarily. And that's, that's one of the cultural things that we always struggle with, just living in the American context, we see ourselves first and foremost at the congregation, mm-hmm. which is not always a bad thing. I mean, William White stressed that, too, when he was developing the, the, the initial documents of the church. But on the other hand, we're more than that. I mean, and, and this, is, this is something that our diocesan officers and bishops are always here to bear witness to in our midst. Any other questions or comments before we wrap up today? I want to thank you all so much for spending time with us in conversation. And you're welcome to stay after and have some further conversation too. And again, a warm welcome to Bishop Powell. Thank you for being part of us this day. We really appreciate it.